September 10th, 2000. It was my day off, and it started normal enough. I slept in. I muddled around, planning for the day ahead. Then I saw the news. Indiana University fires coach Bobby Knight. Crap. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. When the phone started ringing, I told my wife not to answer it. I even turned off all the lights at the house, but it didn't matter. When they knocked on my door, I answered. Get your stuff and get in. They're rioting, was all the sergeant said before he turned and got back in his car. In the end, the riots surrounding the firing weren't catastrophic. There were bonfires and effigy burning, a few rocks thrown and big crowds roaming the campus, stirring up trouble and seeking attention. The night ended with officers in a skirmish line in front of Assembly Hall, watching a crowd of about 6,000 people get angrier and angrier. Finally, Bob Knight came out and addressed the crowd with a bullhorn. These guys up here are friends of mine. Go home. I'll talk to you tomorrow, was all he said. And that was it. That was just one of many protests and riot incidents. I've had the privilege of working in my career. Working for a city like Bloomington, Indiana, home of Indiana University, A liberal arts college with 49,000 students on the Bloomington campus gives you a lot of experience with civil unrest. While this riot seemed tame, I've worked every type of riot you can imagine. You know, the large party that gets out of hand, the sporting event celebration, the political protest, you name it, I've dealt with it. I learned a lot of lessons about riots, and while each one is a little different, they all share some very common traits. Let's look at the types of riots, because they can all start differently. First, you have the spontaneous riot. This thing didn't start as a riot or protest. It was anything but. It was probably a block party, a concert, dance, or even a family reunion. Something where a lot of people gather and drinking is involved. Things start to get out of hand and a fight breaks out. Everyone picks sides and it turns into a big mess. The cops get called. When the cops show up, everyone fighting decides that it would be a lot more fun to fight the cops. And now we have a riot. These things are generally small, usually only a couple of hundred, but they can get nasty. Next, we have the sports riot. Now, these are fairly common and involve sports fans who want to celebrate their team by tearing shit up. It starts innocently enough. The big game, lots of drinking, anxiety building, and then a release of all that emotion. When your team wins, it's mostly joyous with people running through the streets, climbing light poles, and gathering in mass at a few easily identified locations. You know, the stadium, the bar district, the central square... This can still be a crowd control nightmare, but the violence and damage are almost accidental. When the team loses, that's a different story. Fires, bottles, rocks, and vandalism usually dominate the scene. As the anger builds, the officers who are trying to keep everything in line become the focus of that anger. And these riots can get big. Finally, we have the protest riots. These started as a political protest where a group of people supporting the same political or social cause want to make public and government aware of their cause. Now, these often take the form of marches and start or end with speeches given by the organizers. They seek publicity to extend their exposure, but can either get out of hand or be co-opted by other entities turning it into a violent event. And once that happens, the protest is turned into a riot. April 1st, 2002, I'm standing on Dunn Street, just south of Kirkwood Avenue, and Indiana University has just lost the NCAA Men's Basketball National Championship. Crowds pour out of the surrounding bars and start filling the street. The intersection of Kirkwood and Dunn disappears under the mass of angry students. Chants and screams precede bottles flying and fires starting. 
a middle-aged man and his companion walk past me, uh, having just pushed their way through the crowd. He glances at me in my uniform with my riot helmet and shield, and he says, Good luck. I'm getting the hell out of here. If only I could have joined him. Now, that man was one of the smart ones. But every riot seems to have certain types of individuals and groups within the riot. Now, understanding them can be key to reading the crowd. First are the protesters, the people who showed up for the intended purpose of the event. They are there to listen to the music, cheer on their team, or make their voices heard to the establishment. As a general rule, these are the people the event was designed for, and they'll have a desire to stay peaceful. Now, they are the ones wearing the team jerseys, the concert t-shirts, or the t-shirts with slogans across them. They will also be the ones with signs stating their mission, Black Lives Matter, I Can't Breathe, End Police Brutality, you get the idea. Now, this group will also tend to be the core group and make up the majority of the people at the event. Now, when the thing turns into a riot, well, they'll still be there, not recognizing what has happened to the crowd until it's too late. When the police start dealing with the other elements of the crowd, the protesters will often look at that as a confirmation of their beliefs and will respond by escalating the situation. Their verbal and physical responses, mostly posturing designed to make sure they're heard, will encourage other elements of the crowd until violence erupts. This is also the group who loves to claim that the event was peaceful and the police started randomly attacking people. Now, while that may appear to be the case from the protesters' vantage point, the reality is much different. The protesters all share a common mindset, and this has them quickly bond as a group. People who, outside of the event, would likely never meet, quickly feel a part of something. And as humans are prone to do, they become part of the collective. The mentality of the group as a whole can be easily swayed by smaller groups of individuals who start changing the norm. They might start by challenging a certain group, like the people driving by who don't care enough to stop. Uh, then they start moving into the streets to stop traffic. The communal group sees this as the new norm, and they follow. When the drivers of the cars stopped in the crowd start yelling back, the crowd turns on them, seeing them as the enemy. Violence is not far away. Soon people who had no intention to commit violence see that to be part of the group requires them to attack. Mob rules. The next group to keep an eye on is what I like to call the looky-loos. The looky-loos are those who just showed up for the show. They're not part of the event, but recognize that this might be the best entertainment they've had all week. So they decide to show up and watch. This group is interesting because it's very diverse. This is where you'll see the families bringing their children so they can see history in the making or show their kids all the importance of civil disobedience. They have no intention of being a part of the event. They're just there to see what happens. Now, how do I pick these people out of the crowd? They will always be on the fringes watching. Now, sometimes they'll show up with chairs and coolers, looking at the whole event like some big outdoor entertainment. They will not have any of the accoutrements of the protester, no matching t-shirts, no slogans, no signs, and sometimes they can look very out of place. This group usually where the looters come out of, especially in the major protests. Many of the looky-loos that show up look for opportunities to commit crime, loot stores, pickpocket, steal unintended items, and even commit robberies. They use the crowd as cover, and they're almost impossible to separate from the rest of the attendees. The looky-loos generally are the second largest group at the event, and in some cases might even outnumber the protesters, but they're there for the show. They will often be sucked into the violence due to the mob mentality, seeing something interesting happen, meeting people, becoming a part of the group, and then following along. These are usually the ones who say, 
I was just standing there doing nothing and the police sprayed me with gas. They might also end up as a target of the riot with protesters taking a front to people watching them and suddenly they're attacked by the crowds. It may seem like fun, but it's a very dangerous place to be in a riot. And finally, we have the agitators. The agitators are there to sow the seeds of discord, to create the riot. They are well-versed in the concepts of the mob, and they use those concepts to further their own goals. They often will hijack an event, creating violence and discord. This group is loosely organized, but highly motivated and committed to their cause. They have used many names over the years, such as the KKK, Anarchists, Earth Liberation Front, Black Bloc, and Antifa. And when they show up to events, they intend to cause as much chaos, destruction, and violence as possible. These groups train year-round in how to incite riots and cause property damage as well as how to inflict damage to the establishment. Many times, the agitators have little care of the protest and do not necessarily support the protest goals. They simply use the crowd to incite the riot and further push their own political goals. How do I pick these people out of the crowd? Well, they'll be wearing the rioters' uniform. Black or dark-colored jeans, black t-shirts, black hoodie, hiking or combat boots, black gloves, and they will always have a backpack. They'll always wear a bandana or mask to cover their face. They may or may not carry signs, but if they do, they will be the signs that are made from two-by-fours so they can use them as clubs. When we talk about being loosely organized, we're referring to their upper leadership. Recognize that much of what they do can be viewed as terroristic acts. They claim they have no leadership and are not organized, but that is solely to protect the people calling the shots at the top. Their training and preparation for riots show their true colors. The agitators will have specific jobs, soldiers, medics, communications, scouts. These are the actual terms used to describe their duties during the riots. Their packs will have gas masks, rocks, bottles filled with gas to start fires, urine and feces to throw at police, Molotov cocktails, spray paint to mark buildings. They showed up to raise hell. The agitators will try and push the crowd to the riot, and if that's not working, they'll start the violence and destruction themselves, hoping that either the crowd will see it as the new norm and join in, or the police will react. And when the police react, they hope that others are caught up in the police action so that they can use that to incite the crowd. The crowd is big and people on one side think that everything is nice and peaceful and on the other side, they're throwing bricks at police and breaking windows. The police form up and start clearing the streets and then they get pushback from the entire crowd. Now, one side because they relish the conflict and want violence to occur. The other side because they think the police are just attacking them for practicing their constitutional rights. Now, the police have to try and move the crowd by using some kind of force multiplier. And with a couple of hundred police against thousands of protesters, you can't make anything happen one-on-one. -on -one. The police decide to use tear gas, or more commonly, pepper spray. I was practicing my First Amendment right, and the police attacked me with gas. I was standing on the corner with my kids when the police yelled at us to move and started pushing us. I didn't do anything wrong. Now, those statements are likely true. But a crowd is a monster, and you can't fight bits of a monster. You have to deal with the whole thing. These groups aren't perfect, but they give you a broad view of what's going on in the crowd. Members of these groups can shuffle back and forth depending on the circumstances. Looky-loos can suddenly become protesters or agitators. Protesters can decide they've had enough and move to the sidelines, or they can pick up rocks and start throwing things. They might also decide the chance at a 40-inch TV is too tempting and start looting. Agitators are generally always agitators, and they are so focused on their mission they don't change groups. There are also subgroups, if you will, and the only one I want to touch on is the sniper. 
And the sniper is far more common at large riots than most people realize. And when I say sniper, most envision Hollywood's version of the lone gunman with the large rifle and scope from the top of a big building. Now, this does happen and is something we need to be cognizant of. But the sniper I'm referring to is the gunman who decides to take the opportunity of the riot to start shooting at people. Handguns are the most used, but it could be any weapon. Cops are usually the target, but I've seen many protesters and bystanders hit by rounds as well. The cops don't bring armored cars to the riots to run over protesters. They bring them to respond to the snipers. The anatomy of a riot is important to understand. It can help you plan and prepare for how you will approach these very dangerous situations. Some of you have had a lot of experience with these things, and some of you are getting that experience right now. And if you haven't had a riot in your jurisdiction, don't worry. I'm sure one will be coming soon. Blue Canary is here to help you tell your stories. And I couldn't do that without the help of some very generous sponsors. Let's take a quick break to hear from one. Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at Agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y 360.com. How and why do law enforcement agencies respond to these various types of riots and individuals within the riots? Well, those responses will vary greatly and will be based on the specific type of riot, how it was escalated, and the familiarity the agency has with these types of events. Indiana University's Little 500 is an example of how agencies can learn lessons from prior events. Little 5 is a bicycle race held at Indiana University every spring. And while the race itself, which takes place on a cinder oval, only brings in about 25,000 fans, the weekend is a different story. MTV called it the world's greatest college weekend, and approximately 100,000 college kids flood into town for a weekend of partying. Q riot. In 1991, it had hit its peak when an entire apartment complex filled with thousands of students started burning couches, attacking police, and turning over squad cars. The department decided to start planning for the inevitable event. No one planned to riot every little five. They just did. So starting in 1991, we planned for a riot every year. Mandatory double shifts, two-man cars, riot gear in the trunk, proactive policing at large gatherings became the standard approach for the weekend. And while we always had some kind of crowd control situation, it never got as bad as it did in 1991. How did we handle Little Five? Well, first, leading up to the weekend, we began enforcing noise ordinances. Most of the year, we would respond to the large parties and tell them to be quiet, and that if we came back, we'd take action. But leading up to Little Five, we would start issuing noise ordinance citations to every party, no matter how big or small. Our goal was to get as many people as possible afraid of the progressive fines and even university action for repeat offenders. If they were already facing legal action, they might not be as willing to host big parties. Smaller parties meant smaller problems. Next, we mobilized all of our resources. Everybody worked mandatory shifts, no days off. This put the maximum number of officers on the streets and dispatchers in the 911 center, and even janitors in the police station. This meant that if we needed the manpower, it was already in place. We traditionally patrolled in single officer units, but during the weekend, everyone had a partner. 
Nobody would respond alone to any call for service. Every officer had all of the crowd control gear with them in the trunks of the car. No reason to go back to the station to get ready. We could quickly respond, fully equipped and ready to go. We also focused our officers on the problem neighborhoods. More visible officers prevented problems before they ever got started. Now, similar to IU's Little 500 would be the sports riot. You know, professional and college sports team fans number in the millions, and entire towns and cities can be overrun with violence after a big win or loss. The good thing is we usually have plenty of time to prepare. Depending on the sport, you might have weeks, if not a month, to work on mutual aid agreements, city ordinances, logistical support, and any number of similar issues before the big night. When IU played for the national championship in basketball, we started weeks in advance and planning for staffing and deployment. We also worked with all of the local bars to make sure that all alcohol that night was served in plastic cups and no reason to give the crowds weapons. And making sure that public works cleared any and all construction material from the areas that would likely see crowds pre-stationing barricades and blocking roadways to limit vehicle traffic into the problem areas, greasing the light poles to keep the crowd from climbing them, positioning officers with video recorders in strategic areas not accessible by the crowd so that they could videotape and identify troublemakers for arrest teams or even to make arrests at a later date. Now, all of these things should be part of your operations plan. The protest riots are a little different, and response to these riots will vary greatly depending on politics. When the political motivations of the protesters are in conjunction with the political tendencies of the governing bodies, then these riots are often allowed to develop over long periods of time. When the politics of both groups differ, then police response is usually swift. These are rarely a surprise, though, but usually you don't have enough time to prepare for these types of events. You'll find out about a march that's planned for, say, tomorrow. So you have to be flexible with your staffing and equipment needs. And if you don't have any crowd control PPE for your people, you're not going to be able to get it delivered before tomorrow. Departments need to be aware of what is going on in their community, and they need to be ready for this type of thing to happen anywhere. The protest riot has become common and widespread recently, which means that agencies that do not normally deal with these types of issues need to understand the dynamics. Working in a small city with a large liberal arts college, I became very familiar with these types of protests and events. Hell, we even had a protest Wednesday where every Wednesday people would show up at the city square and protest. I don't think the attendees even knew what they were protesting about most of the time. So we became very good at dealing with the situations and understanding the optics of the event. You also have to understand the size of these events. They range from small handful to thousands. And sometimes when you might anticipate something big, it could turn into a non-event and vice versa. They also typically have two sides, and you never know which side will be the problem. When a white supremacist announced his intentions to speak uh, on the county courthouse lawn, we knew things were going to get out of hand. But when only two white supremacists showed up, we breathed a sigh of relief. And then we saw the 200 anti-fascists who began attacking the two white supremacists, and we had a problem. So protest riots sometimes happen quickly. So planning well in advance the steps your watch commanders and officers will take is very important. Now, this can help ease some of those problems that can happen when things kick off in the middle of the night and no one is ready. You can do tabletop exercises with your frontline supervisors and squad leaders to make sure everyone knows the department's goals in the event of a protest. Some agencies will have heavy police presence at protests. Now, we found that was counterproductive. Many times, the protesters would try and incite officers, hoping to get a good video or picture of an officer overreacting. So we would utilize plainclothes officers to observe and record from a distance. The less obvious police presence, the shorter the protests seemed to be. 
Now this can anger some of your citizens and frustrate them because they think you're not doing anything about the crowds. We found that a crowd of 100 people would take an intersection, block traffic, and start chanting, waiting for the police to arrive. When we did show up, they were there for hours. But when we didn't show up, they dispersed within 30 minutes. I even had a female videotaped in the middle of the crowd calling 911 and claiming there was a man getting beaten in an attempt to get officers to show up. So that age-old question, what happens when you have a riot and the cops don't come? Now, don't get me wrong. I know this doesn't work for everyone and every time, but understanding the groups, the goals, and the community is very important to help you respond to these scenes. But when the bottles and rocks start flying and things start burning, it's a different story. I want to make this very clear. We didn't start the riot. People love to blame the officers, claiming that if they didn't show up with all their crowd control gear, then nothing bad would have happened. Well, if the crowd hadn't started throwing bottles, destroying property, blocking traffic, and threatening people, then the cops wouldn't be there. This is not a chicken or the egg argument. It's simple. We don't want to be there. You made us show up. The rioters love to point fingers at the equipment. The heavy black armor worn by officers isn't bulletproof. It's just padding to protect them from sticks and rocks and bottles. About as effective as football pads. The shields are there to help stop flying objects and give the appearance of a wall so people will not attack. The batons are there to help push people out of the way and move crowds who do not want to be moved. And that's why we move in groups with organized steps and making loud noises. We want people to be intimidated and to stop rioting. That way no one gets hurt. When that doesn't work, the next step is gas. Tear gas or pepper spray is used to try and move the crowds without having to physically touch them. This, in the long run, is much safer than physically pushing or shoving a crowd. It's safer for the officers and the rioters. Another tactic is ranged impact weapons. Things like 40mm sponge rounds, beanbag rounds, and pepper ball. Now, these are designed to deal with individual rioters who are attacking officers and not designed to be used against massed groups. But everything changes rapidly, and sometimes when you thought you had an individual picked out, the crowd swells in and covers him. I'm not a fan of using these in crowd control situations, but there are times when it may be necessary. And while all of these things might seem excessive, you need to keep in mind the alternative. When 10 people surround and start beating an officer, the likelihood of that officer being killed is extremely high. And at that point, the only way they can protect themselves is by using deadly force. Without all of these tools or options, riots would quickly turn into bloodbaths. And that's the story we have to tell. Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? And what story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. 